We've been walking through the gospel of Matthew for, I don't know, a long time. We've been making our way through it. I should have done the math before. But we've been walking through section by section. And Matthew, the gospel writers aren't just sitting down and thinking like, what do I remember about my time with Jesus? Let me scribble it down. They're very intentional about each section. And it's all leading towards something that we will continue to head towards. And the section that we've been walking through for the past couple weeks, and particularly chapter 12, is this massive section of rejection where Jesus has been coming to the people who have been waiting for a Messiah, the very people who have been hearing the promises of the Old Testament, that one day a Messiah will come and he'll make all things right. And those very people are looking at Jesus and saying, it can't be you. He's been battling with the religious leaders, the people that know the scriptures better than anyone that should look at him and say, here you are. And instead they're saying, I think we should kill this guy. It's kind of the ultimate form of rejection. We've seen he's gone even bigger. He's going through several cities that he's been ministering to and have rejected him. And he says, woe to these cities. It will be better in the day of Nineveh who got a terrible prophet Jonah and yet repented and you've got the son of the living God and you haven't repented. And then we saw last week he uh, is rejected by an entire wicked generation. So we're just seeing rejection after rejection after rejection. The very people who should be accepting him are the ones rejecting him. And today we're gonna finish this section. Next week we'll enter into chapter 13. We'll enter into a new kind of phase in the gospel of Matthew. But Jesus is gonna finish it off by not just his ethnic people who should be awaiting him, his very family, his blood relatives, his immediate family come to him and in a very real way join in in the rejection. But in this very, very dark chapter, as person after person is rejecting life that's right in front of them and choosing death, Jesus is going to show us in this short little passage, as the people who should be accepting him are choosing to reject him, Jesus is going to actually reveal to us his true family. As his literal blood family rejects him, we see Jesus reveals who his true families are. So we're going to look at three different things today. One is just simply God's true family. Who is God's true family? We're going to look at God's true family, the invitation to God's family, and the life in God's family. So God's true family, the invitation to God's family, and life in God's family. Look at Matthew 12, verse 46. While he, Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sisters and mother. So notice here in verse 26, Jesus, Matthew's connecting this to everything that we've been seeing for the past couple weeks while he was still speaking. So Jesus is still kind of in this conversation, teaching the people. He's responding to this rejection of the Pharisees and the people and the entire generation. So that, those words connect this sermon to last week's sermon. But then Matthew is gonna use this one little word that's supposed to make our ears perk up, the word behold. A way Matthew is saying to you and to everyone who ever reads this book, look, I'm about to show you something. And he says, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So who is this? Just to state the obvious, this is Mary. Mary, Jesus' brothers, we see listed elsewhere in, in Mark 6. We have a list of James and Joseph, Joseph Jr., not the dad, Judas, different Judas, and Simon. Uh, and then there's a couple others that are listed. Almost everyone thinks Jude, the author of Jude, is Jesus' brother as well. And so we have uh, Joseph, the father, isn't there in this scene. There's a, a church tradition that he's died at this point, uh, which we don't see him in this scene. And then we see sisters later in this, in this passage, though they're not 
name. So his immediate family, the stars of Christmas, right? The ones who are getting the angels telling them Jesus is going to come and he's going to save the world from their sins are showing up and they ask him to come outside to them. Now, to really understand kind of the depth of what's happening here, in Jesus' day, the closeness of a family unit is difficult for us to grasp. We have, we have some idea of it, but we also live in an incredibly individualistic age, right? It's a very common theme in our movies and our shows that a dad's like, I need your son to take over the family business. And the son's like, but it doesn't make me happy. I wanna you know, dance or something or whatever. Uh, and the whole movie is about stodgy old dad wanting son to do boring old work and the son being independent, right? Leaving the family and we're like, yes, that makes sense. Right? We probably have some of those experiences, but that is a value in our age that would have been unthinkable in Jesus' day. If your dad was a farmer, you were a farmer. That's how it went. And so there is no individualistic ideas here. So when Jesus' family shows up and asks him to come outside, the assumption that everyone would have had is he comes outside. He stops what he does, he's, he's doing, and he comes outside because your family isn't just a close unit, it's where you get your identity. Your, fam- your family's beliefs are your beliefs. Your family's decisions are your decisions. That's why, you ever read you know, the stories in the Old Testament like in Joshua 7, of the sin of Achan. Achan steals some stuff from Jericho and then he, he gets caught and he kind of confesses and says, yeah, I stole some stuff and his whole family is killed as a result of it. And we read that passage and we're like, that seems super unfair. But no one in the Old Testament has a problem with it. Why? Because the strong assumption is your family's decisions are your decisions. And perhaps most importantly for this story, your family's reputation is your reputation. So we'll see uh, in Matthew 13 when Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth and begins to preach and people are wowed. Look how they examine him. Matthew 13, 54 through 57. And coming to his hometown, he taught them, Jesus taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? And is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, different Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Where did this man get these things? And they took offense at him. So they see Jesus and they're wowed at his teaching, but how do they examine him? How do they come to their conclusions about Jesus' reputation? They examine his family. Because your family's reputation is your reputation. So what's happening here? Jesus is teaching, condemning the religious leaders, condemning the cities that he's preached in and condemning an entire generation. And his family shows up and notice two things as they want to talk to Jesus. One, they're, they're claiming some sort of special status. Quit doing what you're doing, Jesus, and come out here because we have something we want from you. And someone goes and reports it. So there's this expectation that, yeah, he'll stop what he's doing and go out. This is his family. Usually when people say, Jesus, can you stop what you're doing and come help me? The people in the crowd are like, be quiet. Right? That's Jesus you're talking to, but not his mom. They say, okay, let's go. I'll report to Jesus and assuming he's going to come outside. They're expecting this kind of special status as the family that would have been very normal for everybody else. Second thing, why are they doing this? They're almost certainly very worried about their own reputation. Mary, the brothers, the sisters are probably very concerned about Jesus's increase in passion, if you will, his rhetoric that's beginning to denounce their religious leaders, their cities, their generation. One of the things we see in many of the gospels, all the gospels actually, is as Jesus continues to minister, there's this increasing angst in his family. John 7 makes it very clear. His brothers, his own brothers did not believe in him. Mark 3, recording this very story, shows the family going to him because they think he's out of his mind. So I almost titled this story, Mary and Why She's Overrated. I'm just kidding, I didn't do that. Uh, we, we do know from later in, uh, as the gospels play out, James follows his brother, Jude follows his brother, Mary follows her son. But in this story, they're not doing so great. 
they're almost certainly really worried, okay, I don't know about this condemn everybody thing, right? Why don't, you know, they probably have a very strong understanding he's the Messiah that they radically misunderstand like a lot of his disciples do. Like we'll see Peter do. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And when Jesus says, you're right, and I'm going to die on a cross, Peter rebukes him. As if to say, no, 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 that's not what my Messiah is going to do. He's going to kill Rome and put us back on top. They probably have this expectation. He is the Messiah. Mary didn't just forget all that angel virgin birth stuff. But she probably has a radical misunderstanding of how he's going to save the world from their sins. And so other gospels make it a bit more explicit. Matthew, it's more in the background. But notice, at the very least, Matthew is showing us they're not following him. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, says they're outside calling when they should be inside listening. At the very least, they're not a part of his disciples. They're not following him. So they're calling him to come outside. Someone goes and reports to Jesus and Jesus responds. But just if you're a very astute reader, I should make calm you down real fast. Notice there's a verse 46 and there's a verse 48. And you guys are like, uh. Okay, what happened to verse 47, if you're reading an ESV translation? So, a verse didn't miraculously fall out of your Bible. Calm down. Uh, so here's what happened. So <laughs> when the King James Version was first translated, they, they were using about seven manuscripts for at the time was great. Uh, and since then, we have made incredible discoveries of much older manuscripts of kind of the original Matthews, thousands or a thousand years earlier. And almost all of those don't have verse 47, which is just, and the man went in and said to Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. So it's just a repetition of verse 46. And so in the ESV, if you're reading an ESV, I actually don't know if it's in the NIVs, but uh, in the ESV, what they're going with is just, Instead of renumbering all the verses, they're saying this verse was probably added for clarity uh, about a thousand years later, and that's what the King James Version was using. Uh, we're just going to drop verse 47. So it's okay. Everything's okay. Okay. I went to seminary to study all this stuff to calm you down, right? So imagine verse 48. Just, you know, imagine we bumped up all the verses. But we have all the scriptures that, that we need there, okay? Even verse 47 is just repetitive. So we see a guy does go in there says to Jesus, hey, your mom is outside with your brothers and your sisters and they want you. And Jesus responds to that here, verse 48. But he, Jesus, replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? This is uh, one of the passages similar to when Jesus calls that Gentile woman a dog. And you're like, mm, don't love that, Jesus. I uh, would love you to explain yourself a little bit because it seems at best, if we're honest, it seems pretty cold, right? Mary, did you know that you're a baby boy, right? We love Mary. And here Jesus is like, you know, dissing her, like she's not even my mom. Like what's happening here? And again, that's why I, I'm here to calm you down. Uh, this seems cold at best, dishonoring your father and mother at worst. So it's really important to see what's actually happening here because Jesus' words, in the same way they kind of shock us, would have put shockwaves through the people sitting at his feet. All of them would have expected him to say, one second, and go talk to his parents. And so what is Jesus doing here? What is Jesus doing here? One of the things that's uh, important for you to kind of take with you as you read the Bible is when you see Jesus do something very shocking, most of the time, it's on purpose. The Son of God is a very, very, very good teacher. And so instead of just giving a random insult and moving on, Jesus is actually about to reveal something to us that is no less than history-shaping, history-defining. It's meant to be shocking to us. And a way we can actually uh, work through this is by zooming out and looking at God's mission as a whole. So we'll look at that in just a second. But look back at verse 48 as Jesus is about to reveal something. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and my brothers? Verse 49. And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and mother and sisters. So Jesus is doing two things. One, he's correcting his family, his immediate family, and saying, I'm not going to stop the mission of God that I came here to do. 
to alleviate your wrongly placed concerns. This is actually why I came. I know there's angst in your heart, but this is more important. He's not going to stop what he's doing, stop the mission of God to go make them feel more comfortable. But more than that, Jesus turns and actually reveals who his true family is. He turns and reveals who his true family is. As those who are supposed to be his true family reject him, he reveals the true family of God, which is not his blood relatives, not his ethnic people, but rather his disciples, those who do the will of the Father. And again, it baffles us. It would have been baffling to everybody sitting at his feet, again, because the family is the closest possible unit imaginable in Jesus' day. Yet, what has he been saying? What have we already seen him say in Matthew? I came to divide households. I came to turn mother against daughter and son against father. We've seen him say in Matthew 10, anyone who loves their father or mother or brother or sister or child more than me is not worthy of me. He's been saying to his disciples, your highest loyalty belongs to me. And now he's saying to his disciples, my highest loyalty belongs to you. My true family isn't my immediate family, it is my disciples. Now, I've mentioned a couple times, this is something not just shocking, it is something history shaping. We looked at the the very first sermon we ever preached in Matthew. We said one of the things Matthew's gonna do over and over and over and over and over again is take the Old Testament and show how the entire Old Testament is a giant arrow to this person, the person of Jesus Christ. B.B. Warfield, the old Christian scholar said, the Old Testament is like a dark room filled with treasures, but it's very dimly lit. And the New Testament turns the lights on. So here is an area where the lights are being turned on because God creates everything in Genesis 1 and 2. And he makes the first family, Adam and Eve, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. But then man's sin shatters this good creation and man loses his fellowship with God and their fellowship with one another is severely fractured. But what we see throughout the Old Testament is God is going to save Man, he's going to bring man back to him, back to the garden, if you will, to be his family, to be his people through the offspring of Abraham. God calls Abraham in Genesis 12 and says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later in Genesis 17. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. So the assumption is, if you want to be God's people, you need to be Abraham's offspring, which is Israel, which is everybody that Jesus has just been rejected by. If you want to be saved, if you will, if you want to join the family of God, you need to be Abraham's offspring. And Jesus is showing up here and saying, being God's people is not a matter of bloodline. It's not a matter of ethnicity. Rather, it's a matter of coming to me. It's a matter of being my disciple. It's a matter of faith in me. If you want to be in the family of God, If you want God as your father, you need to be a disciple of God's son. You need to put your faith in Jesus. That is the massive history-shaping announcement here. And it's something that a lot of your New Testament is going to go on shaping. Paul in Galatians, you ever read Galatians? You're like, Paul is real fiery. Uh, The reason is Paul has gone and preached the gospel and the Galatian church has said, we love this gospel. And then someone came through and said, you also need to become Jewish, right? Because the promise goes through Abraham's offspring. So you need to, yes, believe in Jesus, sure, sure, sure. But keep the Old Testament law. You need to be circumcised, right? You need to join Abraham's covenant or else you're not saved. Jesus plus 
Abraham, right? And Paul is very fiery. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has brought you a different gospel? And here's what Paul says about the family of God in Galatians 3, 7 through 9. You want to know who Abraham's true offspring is, is what Paul says. Know then that, this, or that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jews, by faith preached the gospel before him to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then skip down to verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul is saying, echoing Jesus' teaching here, the true offspring of Abraham that Christ is revealing isn't ethnic bloodline offspring of Abraham. It's those who have faith in Jesus that are his true children. Those who are Christ's, who are the true offspring of the promise. So Jesus is saying here, you want to join the family, join me. Have faith in me, be my disciple. And you join a family that's even more immediate than your immediate family. In the same way that Jesus is the king of kings, this here that Jesus is showing us is the family of families. You don't get grandfathered into this family. Your parents' faith does not bring you into this family. Your church attendance activities and a religion that you would write on a form do not bring you into this family. There's one way faith in the Son of God is the way in to this family. So, when you come to him, when you come to him, you are actually brought into the family of God. You get God as your father. You get Jesus as your brother. The New Testament says, God puts his spirit in you so that you can cry, Abba, Father. But along with that, that's typically where we stop. Along with that, you also get all those who would come to him as your family. You get God as your father, Jesus as your brother, and all others who have put their faith in Jesus as your brothers and sisters. In the garden, we lose our fellowship with the father, that's broken, and also our fellowship with one another. What does Adam do when God says, who told you you were naked? That woman you gave me, right? There's all of a sudden this, you know, disunity of this perfect Union. What do we see in the next chapter? Brothers killing one another. And what Jesus is coming to redeem as he brings in the family of God is not just reconciling you to God where God is your father. He's reconciling you to one another. Not just where you aren't fighting each other anymore, but where you enter into the family of families. To where fellow believers are closer to you than your actual bloodline. Ephesians 2 is a beautiful chapter. If, you're gonna, if you want to memorize scripture, start in Ephesians 2. And the first 10 verses is one we know very well. We're children of wrath, but God who is rich in mercy made a way. He reconciled us to God by grace we've been saved and we stop there. But the scriptures don't stop there. Paul keeps going. He says this in this great symphony of Christ's redemption. He says this in Ephesians 2, 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then we are no longer strangers and aliens, 
but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household, the family of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Long passage laying out. You weren't just individually reconciled to God where you can cry, Abba, Father. You were joined to a people. And it's not just don't be racist anymore, right? Just the negative things. You guys just be neutral. Stop hating each other. It's a glorious family where you're joined together to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens. Jesus says, as I loved you, as I washed your feet, now you wash one another's feet. Love one another as I have loved you. That's how the world's going to know you're my people, by how you love one another, not by how loudly you sing in worship, but how you treat your brother and your sister. And by brother and sister, we mean the ultimate reality of the family of families. One of the things that you'll hear from this stage often is the reality that we're a family. And I'm not doing that to put like a pretty face on this Parkway Club. I'm trying to orient your mind towards reality. I'm trying to renew your mind with the reality of the scriptures that the person you're sitting next to, God has brought together for eternity in the same family. So that you might not look at them and say, fellow Christian who I kind of click with, but you might see person made in the image of God and dwelt by the spirit of the living God whom I'm called to help look more like Jesus and who by God's grace, it doesn't matter if we click, it doesn't matter what our background is, Aggie or Longhorn, right? That's the best equivalent I could give to the hatred between Jews and Gentiles, right? It doesn't matter your background. If we're united in Christ, we have been brought into the same family and I now have a love for you that surpasses all other loves. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And this may seem like kind of Christianity 101 to you, but the reality is if we're honest with ourselves, because we live in this country, we are often consumers, particularly in the church, we're used to it with like our houses. Yeah, I don't like this house or okay, this, this backyard's okay. Let's keep looking, right? We're, we're looking for that, but we, we bring that into the church. Does this have the music that I like? Is this pastor relatable enough? Does this have the type of community that I like? We're, we have the same consumer mindset. We just have a different product. Right? It's a spiritual consumption rather than a house consumption. You guys know there's other examples. Jesus would say, Jesus does say, say here. Your main problem isn't that you're acting like a consumer. That is a problem and it needs to stop. It needs to die. Your main problem is a misunderstanding of what the church is. The church is not a building that gives you things to do. It's not a divine country club until we get to go to heaven. The church is a people. The church is a family of disciples who have laid their life down and have only found their life in Jesus, the main thing we need to get right to eliminate consumerism isn't my focus on consumerism. It's by relearning what the church is, or rather who the church is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a quote, I, I used it a couple weeks ago, but it's worth repeating. The person who loves their dream of community, this is in his excellent book, Life Together, who loves their dream of community will destroy community. If you show up with strong preferences, I'm looking for a church that does this, 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 and people who are passionate about this, 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 and personalities who are this, 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 this. I need a bunch of introverts for me because I'm introverted and all that sort of stuff. And they're at a different life stage. Destroys a strong word, but he's German, right? It will destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Let me say it to you a different way. Don't look for community. That's a backwards way of thinking. Look for human beings indwelt by the Spirit of God and love them. 
and then just let Jesus create it. That's what he will do. Don't look for community. That's the consumer mindset. Look for breathing Christians, particularly ones that you've covenanted together in the same local church. And you will see Jesus do incredible things. I spent a couple of years uh, in Australia with a missions organization where people from all over the world would come join. And so there would be Spaniards and the Finnish and Americans and Canadians and all sorts of people. And the first months were rough, I'll be honest. Every time there was a new school that came in, it was rough, right? The Canadians were always saying sorry. We were always being very loud, right? Uh, the Spaniards were taking naps in the afternoon. We're like, work hard. Come on, what's going on? Cultures were clashing. And it was truly incredible in this little nine-month school to watch every single year by the end of it, people who, I can't use this word strongly enough, despised one another are weeping as they're about to go home because they've done this. I love you. We're, we, we might not click, but I'm not going to reject you and go look for other people I click with. I'm going to dive deep with you. And it was incredible to watch Jesus do what he says he's going to do. It was create a family with every dividing wall destroyed and make one man out of the two. May that be a reality here as we bear one another's burdens, not just as a commandment to obey, but with hearts that burn with love for one another because we've been brought into the same family. That's what he's doing here. All those who are my disciples are my true family. You have God as your father, Jesus as your brother, and all other believers as your brothers and sisters. So that's this nature of the true family of God. And so the two questions that we naturally should ask next are, who can join this family? And how do we join this family? Who, who gets in and how do we get in? So let's look at this next thing, the invitation to the family. Look at verse 49. And he, Jesus, stretching out his hands towards the disciples, he said, here are my mother and brothers. And so if we just look there, if you just stop there, it almost looks like Jesus is replacing Mary and the brothers and sisters with the twelve. Peter, James, John, right? This is my crew now because I'm on a different mission. Thank you, Mary, for doing your part in the first couple chapters of the gospel, but I've got other things. I'm gonna take these guys and they're gonna go make the church. But if you keep reading, we see that that's not the case. Look at verse 50. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So it's not just the 12. It's not just the 72. It's not just the 5,000 we'll see him feed in a couple chapters. It is anyone who follows the example of the 12 and give their lives over to him and follow him as his disciples. In this passage, we see being a part of God's family is very inclusive and very exclusive at the same time. It's very inclusive in the sense that who does the invitation go out to from Jesus? Everyone. Anyone who would come, the invitation goes out to all, including everyone in this room 2,000 years after this, these words were spoken. But we also see it's incredibly exclusive. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So anyone can come, but there's a very, very narrow gate, if you will, to join, that is doing the will of the Father. So first question, who can join? Everybody. Second question, how can we join? Jesus says, do the will of the Father. Now, I imagine that makes some people in this room a little nervous. We've seen Jesus say this before in, a, in my opinion, more terrifying passage in Matthew 7 where he says, not everyone who comes to me saying, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father. So the important question for us to ask is, what does he mean? What is it to do the will of the Father? And the important first thing to say is, Jesus here is not just giving a new and improved version of the Pharisees' teaching. He's not showing up and just saying, Here's what you need to do. Do better. Follow more laws. The Father wants you to perform well enough, then he will let you in. That's not what he's doing. In fact, 
the whole reason Jesus is here talking to these people is because he is very aware of their inability to do the will of the Father, their inability to obey him. So this is where I said we need to zoom out. Anytime uh, something like this makes us uncomfortable, have the instinct of zooming out and saying, what is God doing? What is the mission of God in the first place? If Jesus, if it sounds like Jesus is saying, perform better, do better works, follow more laws, then maybe God will say, okay. That seems to contradict, I don't know, everything else about the gospel. God, the father, sends his son. Why? Because he knows I've given them my law and they've done nothing but break it. And I need to write it on their hearts. I need to take out that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And so he sends his son, not so that another person could tell us perform better, but so that that son might perform perfectly on our behalf. That he would succeed where we fail. That he resists the temptation from the devil when he's weak after fasting 40 days, unlike we do. That he would perfectly obey the Father's will, unlike we do. And so when Jesus looks at us and he says, do the will of the Father, what is he calling us to? Is he just saying, do better? No, what is he calling us to? He's calling us to himself. If anyone would come after me, come find your life in me. You want God as your father, he says. You want to join the family of God? I am the way. No one comes to the father except through me. Daniel Doriani, who's a professor at Covenant Theological Seminary and a commentator on this passage, says this about this, this passage. This teaching indirectly points to Jesus himself. If doing the will of the Father is the distinguishing sign of Jesus' family, then he is the one who teaches the Father's will. And the core of that will is not follow these commands, but follow me. The will of the Father, say it plainly, is to come to Jesus and lay your life down. Is to come to Jesus poor in spirit and lay down all your poverty so that you can receive all of his riches. To lay down your life so that you can receive life from him. And when you do that, he brings you into his family. When you receive him, his perfect sacrifice on your behalf, then you find the life that you're looking for. Not by earning it yourself. John 1 puts it very plainly. As John starts off, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 1, 9 says this, and the true light which give lights to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. What we've seen in this whole chapter. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to what? To become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, not by bloodline, not by performance, but of God. The will of the Father is to come to his Son and lay down your life and receive life from the Son. Or to say it another way, the way to accept the invitation is to receive the one giving the invitation. The way to accept the invitation into the family is to receive the one giving the invitation into the family. And then, here's the ironic thing, you will begin to obey, but from salvation, not for salvation. You'll begin to obey your Father because you want to, Every duty will become a delight once you've actually been brought into the family. So that's the invitation. Who can join? Everyone. How can we join? Come to Jesus. Receive Jesus. And then lastly, I want to look at before we finish up, one of our instincts as we, when we look at passages like this that are a little confusing is to just get our explanation and be done. 
Right? You see something that makes you a bit uneasy and all you can think of is like, the atheists were right, uh, right? And so when someone explains it to you, you're like, oh, okay, good. Next, right? We move on once our angst has been removed. And if we were to do that in a passage like this, we miss the actual life that's being offered to us. We miss actually the beautiful thing being offered to us because Jesus is not just giving you new information about who his true family is. He is not just saying, you've got a misunderstanding I want to clear up so that you can go off thinking more rightly. He is here to reveal the family you were meant to find your life in. The father you were meant to find your life in. The brother that you were meant to find your life in. So let's look at this last thing, the life in the family. Everyone in this room has such a longing to be known and to be accepted and to be loved. Everyone in this room and everyone outside of this room has that burning longing in their heart. And here's the irony about our day. We live in the day where we are most equipped to craft a perfect life to get acceptance from others. We have social media where we can quite literally take away any blemish, we can filter out any bad lighting and we have no dislike button, we only have like buttons Right? All I want is affirmation. And what's been the result? The most miserable anybody's ever been. Suicide rates absolutely skyrocketing. Why? Because we're so desperate to be known and accepted and loved. And we're looking everywhere else but the only place it can be found. You were made in the image of the living God for life in the living God. You look for it anywhere else. We, we have this great social experiment we're getting to observe at the absolute failure of trying to find life or acceptance anywhere else. And here's the wonderful thing about the gospel. It is quite literally the opposite of our culture's approach. It says, you are seen by the God of the universe and he sees not your removal of the blemish, he sees every single blemish you have, the thing you are terrified for those most close to you to know, he knows. And he knows things you're not even aware of. He peers into the depths of darkness of your sinful heart in a way where you would not dare. And what is his response? What is the response of the one who perfectly knows you in his son, he gives you perfect acceptance and infinite love. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only message that says, I can be fully known and fully, infinitely, perfectly loved and accepted and brought in to the family of the living God. This isn't just a nice thing Jesus is saying. This is the family reality you were made for. And I don't just mean when you die and get there. I mean now. This is your father you're meant to walk with now. This is the savior you're meant to abide in now. This is the spirit that's meant to bear the fruit now. And the spirit that allows you to cry out, Abba, Father, with all that that means now. And we so often miss it because if we're honest, we so often view God as all God's salvation stuff is just like, you know, yes, he saves us, but it's the, the divine paperwork so that he can stay just. He's holy, and if he doesn't save us, then, you know, maybe creation was a mistake and that makes him look bad. So he saves us, sure, right? But he doesn't long for us. It's, it's kind of championship season in football and I guess, well, I guess football's done. Basketball, I meant soccer. Uh, and tennis, there's a tennis championship, uh, and every single player says this, I just want to thank our fans. We love our fans. We can't do this without our fans. And if you're a fan of that team, you're like, they're thanking me. But if you see that athlete on the street, they do not love you. They want you to stay away. They don't want to take a selfie with you. That's how we view God. He generically loves us, but me... I try to come to him, he, okay, yeah, thank you for your support. If we're honest with ourselves. And John Owen, uh, the great Puritan, wrote a classic work called Communion with God, 
getting at this idea of this is the core of what does it mean to be a Christian, communing with your God. And one of the things he says is the most important thing for you to grasp and believe with all your might is the reality that God delights in you. That the son's heart is bursting with joy for you. That your adoption into his family is not just paperwork. It's not just a state that the father wants you in his family. That the father went after you. He didn't generically send his son to the world. He sent for his elect. He went after you so that he could adopt you into his family. I was, uh, I was in this, I'm in this pastor's cohort thing. And so a couple weeks ago, I was traveling uh, to this gathering. I was talking to somebody who's on staff there. He's a psychologist and he had adopted a son. And Claudia and I are in the process of adoption. So I was picking his brain about stuff. And he was just telling me stories. His son's grown now. And uh, he, he told a story about uh, his adopted son when he was in uh, grade school was being made fun of uh, by kids who, weren't adopted. And the reality was adopted. They were mocking it and saying, how hey, you're adopted, blah, blah, blah. And the kid was genuinely confused. And his response was, how do you know your parents even wanted you? I'm positive my parents wanted me. And he was like seven. So I don't know if he meant it as like, I don't know if he knew that was like the greatest own, like of anybody in the world. Your parents, you know, you just popped out. And they're like, this one, right? We're stuck with this one. My parents came after me. And they delighted in me. And they brought me into their family. And until you can grasp the wonderful reality that the God who said, let there be light, said your name before he said, let there be light. And he sent his son after you to bring you into his family as an adopted daughter, an adopted son that his heart bursts with infinite love for, you'll always keep him at an arm's distance. But oh, taste and see. Hear Jesus' words. See the beautiful realities of the family of God that you're being brought into and live the life you were made for where you don't need acceptance from others because the only one whose opinion matters looks at you and says, this is my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. That as the world crumbles around you, you know the good shepherd is with me and says he'll never leave me or forsake me. That when you pray, you're not just throwing up prayers to an indifferent God, but a father who's had his eyes fixed on you for all eternity hears you. And that your joy can actually be in him and not dependent on your circumstances. Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Here's the last thing I'll say, then we'll pray. All the exclusive privileges that Mary and the brothers want from Jesus right now, but can't have, you have. You have the king of the universe's ear any time you would look to him and speak. Harvey, uh, my three-year-old boy, is in this phase where he wakes up and asks us for stuff in the middle of the night. And so it's hilarious because if he comes to my side of the bed, you know, I wake up and, hey, you know, if it comes to Claudia's side of the bed, I, I'm woken up by her freaking out because she just opens her eyes and he's standing there. Uh, but, you know, he'll tap you on the face and just say, like, can I have some water or I had a bad dream or whatever. And, of course, we need to teach him, you know, don't come out of your bed when the thing is red, all that stuff. But there's something in my heart that when I see my little boy 
asking for something so little, and he's interrupting my sleep. I mean, you guys are hard to pastor. I need my sleep, right? And so he's hurting the church by this, but my, <laughs> my heart just delights in him. I love holding his hand and walking to the kitchen. And this has been for the past month he's been doing this. It reminded me of a, a, an old pastor, uh, one of my favorite sermons years ago, uh, preaching on God and the access we have as children, uh, said, the only one who dares wake up the king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is his child. You have that kind of access. And so, see the reality of the family. Receive the invitation that has been extended to you as the son has his arms wide and live the life you were made for. If you're not a believer, I think you figured out by now everything else will run dry. Every other well will run dry. You can keep trying, but it's, it's, you're going to have the same result. There's one person you were made for. And if you are a believer, please fight against and put to death the thoughts that are lying to you about who God is, that he does has his arms crossed indifferently, that he generically likes you like an athlete thanking his fans but doesn't like you. And see the reality that the scriptures scream at you. The God of the universe loves you so much that he sent his son in whom his heart delights for all eternity to die for you. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross so that you might be brought in. That the love that the Father and the Son have shared for all of eternity, you might get to participate in. Don't turn away from that life that has been laid before you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask again, quite simply, that you would do what you've done and make the truth that we read in your word real to our hearts, that this wouldn't just be an intellectual understanding, that this wouldn't just be doctrine, uh, but it would be life. It would be something that begins to define our minutes and our hours and our days and our plans and our relationships and our hopes and our fears that it would begin to actually shape who we are. That you would make us look more like your son. There's no one who knows the wonders of your love, Father, like your son. And you say you're making us more like him by your spirit's sanctifying work. So do that, please. We, we beg you, Lord. We come hungry, wanting to be fed by the only true food. We want to taste and see of your goodness. We want to hear the rich words and cling to them with all of our might. I will never leave you or forsake you that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. Please do that in our hearts, Lord, as we go to the table and as we sing to you, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.